Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and we're coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network International. Thank you for joining us today. Um, in case you're the, this is the first time for you to join our program, I want to tell you that you can go to chnetwork.org to find out about the work of the Coming Home Network, but you can go to deepinscripture.com to access all the old archives of the Deep in Scripture program. Joining me today on the program is a good friend, Doc, Father Douglas Grandin. I just gave you a, a, I raised your employment to doctor there for a second, Doug. You know, I have a PhD, but they don't call me that because father is even better. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. It's great talking to you. Good to see you. You know, uh, I want your listeners to know that uh, 15 years ago when I was uh, wrestling with coming into the Catholic Church or not, uh, you sent me a whole box load of books and extended friendship to me, and and I've been grateful for you and the Journey Home Network ever since. Thank you for your, your life and your ministry. Well, thank you, uh, Father Doug. I, uh, the work of the Coming Home Network has never been and I hope you would affirm this or confirm this, is that the work of the Coming Home Network has never been to push, pull, or prod anybody into the church, but to stand beside and provide prayer and support and fellowship and resources. Mainly the goal is so to help anyone that contacts us grow closer to our Lord Jesus Christ and discern God's call in their life where he's calling them to serve. Yeah, that's another thing I appreciate about you and your team there, that you... Um you value, as do I, what everyone is doing for the kingdom yeah. wherever they are. And I, I have never had to disparage my life as a, an evangelical free church pastor or an Episcopal priest. We can look back on our lives outside the Catholic Church and on what others are doing um, with uh, high praise and, and thanksgiving for what God is doing everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it all comes down to recognizing, as St. Paul told Timothy, or Titus, both of them, that God desires everyone to be saved. God desires and gives grace, mm -hmm. gives grace. Now it's up to us to pro proclaim the gospel and to live the gospel so that other people can respond to the grace that's in their hearts so that they can turn back to Jesus Christ and to his church. And our goal is to tell, our goal is to tell. And not to try and guilt somebody in or mm -hmm. or manipulate because we want them to have a life changed in Jesus Christ. And I know you're committed to that yourself in the work that you do. And I know you work in a local parish and you teach at a seminary and you also work with Focus, which is really neat because you're... Yeah, I love Focus. Yeah, maybe talk to someone about that because someone listening may not be familiar with the work you do with Focus. Well, this furthers our conversation of a moment ago that... Um, that we appreciate what's done outside the church, outside the Catholic Church, and value that. Curtis Martin, the founder of Focus, a good friend of yours and mine. Right, right. Um, Curtis was a kind of lapsed, well, not kind of, a real lapsed Catholic at Louisiana State University, and he was evangelized by missionaries from Campus Crusade for Christ who brought him to real faith in Christ and introduced him to the love of Scripture. And um, he grew... Uh, under Cam Campus Crusades auspices, and then um, rather than accept a leadership role with them, he realized, I, could, I should bring this to the Catholic Church. 
<laughs> and eventually Focus was born, where Focus pretty much does what Campus Crusade does, evangelizes kids on university campuses. We're on 130 campuses now, and even moving over into Europe slowly. Yeah, and then one of, the, one of the things I'm most excited about is Focus recognizes, as, as do you and, and I, that the parish is the central thing, and our parishes are lagging. We're not doing well at evangelizing in our parishes, not doing well at deepening the faith of our own parishioners. And so some of these focus missionaries are moving from campus work to parishes. We have some pilot projects going here and there around the country, and that's very exciting to me because I yep. want to see the parishes come alive with evangelization and, and, and really serious catechesis. Yeah, it's interesting, the parallel though not an exact parallel, of course, with Campus Crusade, because Campus Crusade even recognized in its work, I think, in Eastern Europe, that pretty soon Campus Crusade was starting churches uh, mm -hmm. because they saw the problem in the local. I mean, evangelization isn't was intended by our Lord Jesus Christ to be through the community, through the people of God. When right. people are baptized, they become a part of the mystical body of Christ, and that is the place where evangelization should take place, but sadly, our parishes, it isn't always happening. So Curtis is taking that model. He's not starting churches by any means, of right. course, but he is using the gifts of focus to work in evangelization at the local parish level. And that's an exciting, exciting thing that he's doing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm privileged to be now one of the four national chaplains, and I'm moving a little, very slowly into greater and greater involvement. I'm two days a week now, moving to three rather shortly, and who knows what will happen. I wanted to mention, Marcus, um, you remember the founder of Campus Crusade is Bill Bright, right. the late Bill Bright, a really godly, good man. I remember when I was a, an evangelical seminarian at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, north of Chicago, and Bill Bright came to chapel. That must have been must have been maybe 88, 89, something like that. <laughs> and he told us, when none of us thought that communism would ever end, Soviet communism in particular, I remember him telling us, gentlemen, you may not believe this, but it won't be long before God brings Soviet communism to an end. That country is going to be open to missionary work, and you need to be prepared to contribute to that effort. And I thought that's I, I had lived, you know, in communist Yugoslavia, and I thought this is not uh, going to happen very soon. <laughs> and it happened in 1991. And then, do you know, while I was an Episcopalian, someone asked me if I would go over and, and teach a course in the dead of winter at the Campus Crusade College in Moscow. And I loved it so much training these new leaders that I went back four years in a row each time in the dead wow. of winter. Wow. But thank God for visionary people like Bill Bright and others. Whether they're Catholic or not, they're advancing the kingdom, and we're grateful for that. We definitely are, definitely are. I remember hearing from one of the f bishops of, uh, I think it was Poland, or one of the countries that was formerly a part of the Soviet Union, and it was after the fall of the wall and the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, and the bishop made his first visit back to the people, and he wondered what he would find. And he mm. said it was on a rainy day, been raining for days, lousy weather. He figured he wouldn't see anybody, but as he drove down the street, people were coming out of the houses on their knees 
to welcome him. Oh, and, and, and his comment was that the faith survived in the Soviet Union, and, and this was a bishop speaking, not because of us, but because of the people. They kept yeah. it in their heart. It was alive. Mm -hmm. Even under all that oppression, the faith was there alive in their hearts. It was very moving. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. All that being said, we're going to talk about Scripture today, and we're doing hard verses. And in other words, verses that basically, of course, I believe any verse can be a hard verse depending on a person's theology. So we got, that's why we've got to be careful uh, in our interpretation. But you've chosen an amazingly simple verse. You know, I'm being tongue in cheek here, uh, Father mm -hmm. Doug. But Luke 16, and what I'm going to do, because I know some of the people listening to this are out jogging, they may not have a Bible in their hands. I'm going to read, it's kind of a long passage, but as those of you listening, as you hear the passage, think about how you would explain to your neighbor or to your friend or your brother or your wife what this means. What was Jesus trying to teach his disciples and his apostles by this story. So this is Jesus teaching. He said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a servant and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your stewardship for you can no longer be servant, and the stu no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that people may receive me into their houses when I am put out of the stewardship. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, Well, how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Well, you take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonored steward for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. He was faithful in very little, is faithful also in much. And he was dishonest in a very little, is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Well, Father Grandin, there's a lot of stuff in that, but begin by talking about some of the reasons why this passage might be considered hard. Yeah, this, uh, I, 
this passage is interesting to me because most of the time when I've heard it uh, preached, I feel like that the the preacher doesn't quite get at it, um, and it's it's always for well for some it's it's embarrassing to preach because you have Jesus commending this dishonest man. Yeah. Most of the parables have something odd, something quirky. Um, and in this one, it's, it's clearly that Jesus praises a dishonest man. And we don't have in the parable really the, the, the full, the full um, idea of exactly what he was praised for. Uh, on the face of it, when you, when you read this, it looks like when he went back and he made new deals with these debtors, that he was giving away his master's money. The owner's money. Um, But the important point in this parable, I think, two two important points, first of all. The the one thing that we need to understand in order for it to make sense is that he was, first of all, he was fired because he was dishonest. So what was his dishonesty? It was almost certainly that when he was making deals for the owner that he was working for, that he was tacking on outrageous interest much like the tax collectors would do. That's how they made their money. This guy was making extra money by charging outrageous interest. And so it's almost certain that when he went back, after he he heard he was going to be fired, and he said, how much do you owe 100? Well, then pay 50. That he was sacrificing his own money. He was writing off the unjust interest that he had added to pad the account. And so he was fired for adding, adding interest and putting it into his pocket. And then when, the, when his boss found out that he was going back and sacrificing his own money, he thought, wow, that's a pretty good thing. And, and he commended him for, for doing things right in the end. Now, that, that, that simply sets the stage here for the, for the story. So Jesus can commend this this servant for for sorting things out. And why did he need to sort things out and make this sacrifice of his own money? Because Jesus tells us he didn't know what he was going to do when he when he was fired. And he needed help. And so he went to this this person and this person and this person, wrote off a large portion of his debt that was his his uh, dishonest gain. Why? so that when he was fired, they would receive him into their homes and maybe provide him with some, some employment. Now, this is, this is the critical point here, that he did it, he sacrificed his own dishonest gain so that he could be invited into their homes after he was fired because he, he needed to land on his feet. Yep. And then that leads us to Jesus' primary point in verse 9, where he says, this is the message from the parable, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. Now, once, once, we, once we get behind the difficulty of the story, that this dishonest man was commended for doing an honest thing, writing off his gain, even if it was for personal interest, so that people would receive him into their homes. Once we move beyond that, we say, okay, 
I see why he was commended, even though he was dishonest. He wasn't commended for his previous dishonesty. He was commended for doing something right at the end, writing off his dishonest gain. Once we get beyond that, then we can understand this, verse 9. And it's this point that I think that many who have handled this text fail to get to, Hmm. partly because they fail to understand what exactly this guy was commended for. And it's critical that what he did was motivated by his need for a home. He needed to go to somebody's house. He needed a place to live because he had previously been living on the, uh, the, uh, his boss's estate. So two things here in verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon. This is to us. So what's unrighteous mammon? It's, it, it, it's not saying that all money is evil. We know that. St. Paul said it's the love of money that's evil. But mammon, money, wealth does tend to corrupt. It does. Yeah. We, we know this. We know that when the church is wealthy, when God's people are wealthy, there's the temptation to lethargy. We have this uh, reading uh, you know, in Revelation chapter 3 about the Laodicean church was wealthy and lukewarm. So mammon does tend to promote unrighteousness. So, But we have it. We can't allow it to tempt us. But then the next part, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, they, those friends, may receive you into the eternal habitations. Now this, and I'll, I'll send it back to you. Here's, here's the, the analogy. This fellow took his unrighteous gain and he made friends with it by writing off their debt, his portion of the gain. He made friends with them. They welcomed into the, him into their homes. What are we supposed to do by analogy? We're supposed to take our wealth, which we have to be very careful it doesn't corrupt us, we're to take that wealth and make friends with it, and those friends, just as th- that, that dishonest guy, his friends welcomed him into their homes, these friends that we make with our wealth will welcome us into our eternal home. Now, here's the point, I think, that I very rarely hear when this is preached. God wants us to take our financial resources and invest them wisely in the kingdom. So if people send money to the Coming Home Network, you use that money wisely, you marshal those resources as best you can for the advancement of the kingdom. And someday when you arrive in heaven, and they arrive in heaven, there will be a whole mass of people who will welcome you and them home. And those people will say, who are you? And they'll say, you invested your money in the Coming Home Network, and I heard Marcus' podcast, and I heard his Journey Home program, and I came to faith through that. I came to deeper awareness of the Catholic Church through that. Whether you, adv- whether you invest in Focus or Campus Crusade or some other effort, your local parish, you will one day, all of us will one day be amazed that there will be people welcoming us home who will say, you know, since my arrival here, I've become aware it's partly because of you and your investment that I'm here. So I think that's what the message is in this parable. 
But we, we don't usually get to that message because often we don't even know what this guy was commended for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then and then we then we we let it slip that, OK, he did it to be welcomed into a house. And then we have to once we get that, which is difficult, then we then we move to the analogy, which is we give money to good causes, which cause people to be converted or draw closer to Christ. And one day they'll welcome us home. It's there's an interesting. What do you think? There's also an interesting parallel here. And that's excellent, Father between the prodigal son and in this man because the prodigal son did not realize the results of his own behavior until he found himself eating the pods of the pigs in the bottom. It took him to get to the bottom to realize, but but even then, the response by grace in the prodigal son's condition was the remembrance of his dad's love and generosity, and that he would come home. And then in, in the prodigal son's circumstance, it led to humility. I'll go home, even if I got to be the servant. I, it, so there was an awakening within him to his condition, how bad he had gotten himself into and his need to return home. In the story here, we have a man who's dishonest. He's abusing his master's money. Mm-hmm. And not only between he and his master, but he's abusing the customers. Right. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. And he would go probably have gone on like that for the rest of his life except that the master caught it and the master was going to fire him. Mm-hmm. And so we have in that guy's life an awakening. And how will he respond to that awakening? Was it totally selfish? Or was he also recognizing that what he had done was wrong? Yes. And so his, re- his reaction in the way he treated the customers was... He was throwing himself on their mercy, but what he was doing, he was cutting out his dishonesty, like you mm-hmm, said. Mm-hmm. He's cutting it back. Now he's being a good servant to these people. I don't think there was anything in that passage where he says, hey, Fred, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut down to your original bill what it was if you give me a house when I get out of here. Right. He wasn't, it wasn't conditional. It was like the humility of the prodigal That's son. Right. He was doing what was right, and then he was leaving his future open to God, mm-hmm. to what these people would do. He was trusting that. Yes. And, uh, and then that, to me, gets into what you're saying, is this... It has to do... I always come back to conversion. This man is going through a conversion of heart. And it's not conditional on a part of authentic conversion is humility of trusting tomorrow to God. I'm not making a deal with God. I'm not making a deal with, uh, he wasn't making a deal with the customers. He was doing what was right and that he was trusting tomorrow to God. Absolutely. And it's much like Zacchaeus. Uh, you know, we, we see this in the New Testament. It was some, it, they got this from the law. 
that if they had been dishonest, they needed to uh, not only surrender their their dishonest gain, but then you know pay some sort of a penalty. And this guy is trying to trying to make things right as best he's able in this difficult situation. And then he gains by being invited into a home or homes there. And of course, when we give of our unrighteous mammon, when, when we give of our wealth that has the tendency to corrupt, um, if we're not careful, we don't do it because we want to get to heaven or because we want people to welcome us into heaven. We do it just because it's the right thing to do. But God in his grace gives us these unanticipated bonuses. And one of the bonuses here will be that, that one day when we enter into eternal habit, our eternal home is what that means, there will be people welcoming us. And, you know, we, we, we casually put money into the collection plate or we casually send money home, send money off to this ministry or that. And often we just forget about it. But there will be eternal reverberations from that. And one of those will be that one day we will see the people who have benefited from our, our, our faithful giving welcoming us into heaven. What a great day that will be. Yeah, yeah. This, you, you, you get to the good point there that sometimes the phraseology of the Greek as it's translated into the Latin and then into the English we end up with idioms that don't always translate into our modern day. And it may sound like Jesus is saying that you use this unrighteous money uh, to better yourself. And that's really not what he's saying. The, the make, I interpret the idea of making friends for yourselves is evangelization. Making friends for yourself has to do with bringing people, friends into the kingdom. That's what that's about. It's, it really is in the context of that because that's how the statement ends, because the statement ends about eternal habitation. As you said, that's the context. It's the kingdom. And the stuff, the unrighteous mammon, the point is that's of this kingdom. Right. When we die, we leave it all behind. So what is this stuff for? Well, one of the main reasons for all the stuff we've been given is for the goal of the kingdom, for the reaching out to others. Amen. And, you know, when it says, when our wealth fails here, um, it means either when we die. You, you know, you've heard it before. We used to say this all the time as Protestant ministers. Um, there are no pockets in a shroud you never right. see a U-Haul behind a hearse, you know, these kind of things. <laughs> That's right. It's all true. Uh, so eventually, upon our death, our money will fail. But, you know, if we live long enough in this life, we're going to experience some bust. Inflation will steal our money. There'll be recessions where we, we go backward financially. Um, what we want to do is make sure that we wisely use what we have when we have it. And God will always remember that. That's so amazing. I love that passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about us receiving blessing. What does it say? Heaped up. You think of a bushel basket. Heaped up, pressed down, running over. Yeah. The blessings for what we do are way beyond anything that we do. 
And we don't just do it for our blessings. We're not prosperity kind of people who say, you know, I'll give one dollar and I'll get 10 back. But the fact is that God does bless us. And not just financially, but he blesses us with grace, with insight, with new spiritual gifts, new opportunities for service. But we should be very, very generous. And that's the point here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the prosperity folk, and we've got a lot of good Christian brothers and sisters that sadly are caught up in that prosperity gospel, which does not make a clear distinction between God's blessings in providing what he discerns we need versus what we want. And the prosperity people think if you got a lot of faith, God's going to give you what you want. Yeah. No, God will provide what you need, and that might actually be very, 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 very small. I mean, how many clothes do we need? How many barns worth of food do we need? I mean, how many cars do we need? And the point is, God provides our needs. He doesn't provide wants. And when we think of filling our barns full of unrighteous mammon, uh, then we've, we've missed the point Absolutely. of what he desires for us. And that's why I love the verse where he says, he was faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. Growing in holiness begins with the satisfaction of very little, of humility. And that's what this guy did in this story. He was willing to give up everything that he had been stealing before for the sake of of trusting the future to God. Yeah, and, and you know, in verse 14, as we come out of this uh, parable and Jesus' commentary on it, we see why he taught this. In addition to teaching the disciples, verse 14 of Luke 16 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all this and they scoffed at him. Yeah, I mean, God wants us to be blessed. But uh, the, the, the mistake of the prosperity gospel is, um, is the wrong answer to who's in charge. I had a great professor, Don Carson, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I remember him saying, the prosperity gospel makes um, God into a cosmic vending machine with us in control. We push the right buttons. God has to do what we want him to do. But God is God. And there are times, I know it's hard for some people to believe, and it's, it's hard for us to accept, but there are times when God has lessons for us that are only learned when we're suffering a bit. I look back on my life, I'm 58 years old now, and there were times where God taught me profound lessons about his provision uh, when I was in desperate need. If I wouldn't have been in desperate need, I wouldn't have known that I could trust him. And so it's important for us uh, both to be prosperous, but also to to have tight times as well, yeah, because yeah. we learn great lessons. Suffering is really good for us, even though it's hard. It's amazing taking what you've said to compare the prosperity gospel preachers to this story, because in the story we have the master setting a level that the steward was to expect of his customers, but the steward on his own added on to it for himself. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And God 
has told us through the Gospels and through the teaching of the church what he expects of us, a level of what he desires us to. He calls us to simplicity and detachment. Mm -hmm. But we want to add on to that. We want to add on what we want. And that's what we expect God to give us, and we expect it from other people. We expect they should see in us all this, the levels of it. And we become dishonest servants yeah. by adding on our own rather than being satisfied with what our master has given and called us to do. That's right. And one thing I know for sure, I, you know, we, I remember when we had a, a, a little Christian school back when I was an evangelical Protestant. Um, we, were, we kind of had pity on poor kids that were in bad inner city schools, and we started this little school. We ran it for eight years, and we, we, uh, we provided a good education, good Christian education, and we didn't charge. We just trusted God for the money, yeah. and it was a wonderful time. But a number of these families um, attended uh, churches that were like prosperity gospel churches. Yeah. And I would, I would go around and visit the churches that our kids attended, and one thing that I, I noticed over time, over time, everybody suffers. Over time, reality will get to us. And you can pretend that, oh, God, if I just have enough faith, God always wants me to be prosperous. God always wants me to be healthy. God always wants the very best for me. But just live long enough and reality will hit yeah. and teach us that that's not the case. And that it's not just because we don't have enough faith. It's because God's priority is not for us to have a comfortable life. It's for us to progress in holiness. And that yeah. requires some adversity. You know, and you were in the mission field, and you probably know ex even more examples of missionaries that go from America into these very poor areas if they come from a prosperity gospel. In reality, their understanding of the gospel is the American dream. Yes. And, and they drop this on these poor people, assuming that these poor people are are unhappy, and they're unblessed, and they they make they put undue expectations on these poor people that if they really are believers of Jesus Christ, then they're going to have the American dream, mm -hmm. and it, it it destroys the joy that they already had in Jesus Christ. Right. Well, we know that that. Uh parts of the world where there's great suffering, or those communities, there are many people who suffer uh, within, uh, within our borders, people who suffer um, from lack of prosperity, lack of, of cultural influence, um, suffer other misfortunes, they often have a more profound faith than the rest of us, yeah. because they have, they've learned to rely on God. And we know that in Scripture, especially in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus... Jesus is described as having a particular heart for the poor. We, have, we talk about in the Catholic Church the preferential option for the poor. Because God gives special attention to the poor, the widows, the orphans. Um, we want to improve their lot as much as we can, but uh, there is something very special about being in those uh, needy situations that draws God's attention. Yeah, the prosperity gospel folk would have looked at St. Francis and said, that poor man, if he'd only had enough faith. <laughs> and Jesus himself. <laughs> yeah. Father Grandin, thank you for joining us today. What a great pleasure. And uh, God bless you and your continued work and all that you do. Marcus, you're a dear friend. Always good to talk with you. Keep up the good work. God bless you. All right. 
And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. Again, I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you want to find out more about our work, go to chnetwork.org, or you can go to deepinscripture.com and uh, access all the Deep in Scripture programs. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week.